Welcome to the Vedic Worldview. I'm Tom Knowles. Today we have the Ask Me Anything episode. I want to thank all of you who've made your individual contributions to this group effort to continue to do that. It's very helpful and it's pivotal to what we're doing. You may make your donations through my website. Also, on iTunes, you'll find an opportunity to make reviews, and those are always very helpful to us. Radek asks, is there anything else, except being a shining example to attract people to meditate, to do something with their world, the world around us? I keep hearing, I don't have time, I don't need it, too expensive, etc., etc. Is that only a reflection of my inner setup? Thank you. Well, Radek, In the final part of your question, you're right on to it, because, of course, in the Vedic worldview, everything is part of your inner setup. (laughs) There's no real world out there, quotes-unquotes. The only world is your own state of consciousness. And so, yes, what is there else to do? I think continue to practice your technique, continue to grow in knowledge, continue to work on becoming even more of a shining example. And what will happen is that people will find it irresistible to ask you a question. And once you have some worthy inquiry, that is to say, some question that is genuine, that gives you permission then to say more. And those people who have that worthy inquiry satisfied are far more likely to act than those upon whom you thrust unsolicited advice. And so it's not within the Vedic worldview to give unsolicited advice to people, uh, but rather to inspire worthy inquiry and then respond to that accordingly. Brian asks, if one doesn't quite believe that what they're doing is totally, quotes-unquotes, in line with their dharma, that's their personal role in the evolution of the universe, then are they simply just wasting precious energy and time carrying on with it? Or instead, should one just drop everything and re-examine their life and purpose? I would love to know what the Vedic worldview has to say about folks who have always been slightly too unsure about themselves most of their adult life. Brian, I think it's all a question of intensity. Let me give you an analogy that Maharishi gave me once, and it fell into the category of what we call the big mama analogy. So there's a little guy. Let's make that little guy you, Brian, some maybe four-year-old or five-year-old walking through a supermarket, and behind him is mama. And he arrives at a fork in the road. He's not sure whether he should turn left or right. All he has to do is refuse to move. And Mama's going to come along and shove him in the right direction. He doesn't really have to worry too much about whether he'll go in the right direction or not, so long as he knows Mama is there, Mother is at home. How does this analogy pan out in our daily life? If we're absolutely unsure about whether what we're doing is right or not fulfilling or not part of our dharma, not in our role in the evolution of things, then first of all, if that question is coming regularly, if that question is a feature of your everyday life and a dominant feature and perhaps even the most dominant question or thought that comes to you repeatedly, then certainly it is time to stop and take stock and see and think, well, what would happen if I just waited for a few moments. The idea would be that provided that you have your regular practice of meditation morning and evening, that's the mama, that's the mother at home, that's the intelligence of the universe, which is then going to push you in one direction or the other. The idea here is that a meditator builds an inexorable force of evolution in themselves. 
and the universe is going to force you to do one thing or another thing. You won't get to wait for very long. We're not in the business of waiting. We're in the business of taking direction. And sometimes to stimulate the taking of direction, we do have to just stop. Channing asks, What's the Vedic view on the murder of animals for human consumption? How is it that some people continue to eat meat, yet some do not? And do you think that that then reflects on their evolutionary path? Well, Channing, the question has a, reveals a natural bias that you have in the use of the word murder, which I would define as, you know, the taking of a life that is, you know, grossly against the interests of that thing which is being killed. Once we start using the word murder, then we also have to examine the spontaneous effect of walking on microbes and breathing in and out microbes and bacteria in our bodies that are being slaughtered by the process of, of simply having a human body and living. The Vedic worldview on all of this is, first of all, it is not possible to be alive and exist without killing happening. Some kind of killing at some level is always happening. In the West, we have an idea that there is a cutoff point. Only certain sentient animals with a certain degree of intelligence, as assessed by us humans, are the ones which, if you kill them, then something's wrong. I was confronted at an airport recently by a young woman who was wearing a t-shirt that said, you know, be kind to the animals or I'll fucking kill you. And she was handing out pamphlets and brochures on veganism. Now I know that this is not representative of veganism. I'm not so silly to think otherwise, but she believed it was. But she was also wearing what were clearly a very nice looking, by some standard, pair of knee-high boots made from cow's leather and a belt made out of cow leather. Um, there are some people who would find that whole behavior completely anathema. When we begin to ask questions about what does killing mean and who are we killing and what are we killing, the Vedic worldview comes down very squarely. It is not possible for you to breathe, to exist, without killing by the hundreds of thousands all kinds of little critters whose lives are expended without their asking us to in order for us to continue to exist. And then we have the choice, well, do I just kill myself and, you know, get rid of this killing machine, which is my body? And the answer to that's going to be, let's see if there is any possibility of any life anywhere in any aspect of the universe where a life can exist without some form of killing going on, where if we stop drawing the line at killing okay, but microbes okay, bacteria okay, but not anything as big as, say, a tapeworm that might be in my gut. And if I take a herb to kill the tapeworm, am I killing a thing, murdering it? These questions are all resolved by the idea of bringing about the greatest good in the universe. What is the greatest good that can be brought about by the fact of our individual existence? And this is, given that, we cannot have an individual existence without something being killed and lots of things being killed en masse if we decide not to draw the line here and there in some kind of human anthropocentric way. What's the greatest good that can be done in the universe by the fact of my existence? I want to bring about the greatest good. When I have that experience, I am one with the universe. When that is my dominant mentality, I'm one with the universe. I am the universe. I am totality. When that experience occurs through regular practice of Vedic meditation, there's a symptom of it. And the symptom tends to be that the individual moves through life with a minimum of violence. Violence is minimized. What does violence mean? Well, it means effectively 
cutting across the interests of another living being in order to move and exist, in order to progress and enjoy. Now we've noted that it's not possible to make any movement or even exist without some kind of killing going on. And most of the lines which we draw are very theoretical, like, you know, bacteria don't mind being killed, but squirrels do. This is a very anthropocentric view. What is the greatest good that can come about by virtue of my existence? I exist for a reason. What is that reason? And what is the I that's asking the question? What's the nature of this I? Who am I? What am I? These questions need to be answered. And once they are answered satisfactorily, and satisfactorily will, will mean that I discover I am the universe individuated, then we're going to find as a symptom killing and violence are minimized in life in every way. Another one from Radek. I hear about great benefits of the Wim Hof method on both physical and psychological levels. Could you please comment on the Wim Hof method in light of our tradition? Radek, for the listeners who don't know who Wim Hof is, uh, Wim is a man who lives in Europe and who has a method of exposing himself and then teaching to others how he did this to... Uh, very low temperature water, diving into that water, swimming in water that is on the verge of freezing, and then training the body. And he claims that anyone's body can be trained to regulate the body temperature so that not only is it survivable, but that cold no longer is experienced as an enemy of the human condition. And if you want to ever look this up, just look up his name, W-I-M-H-O-F. W-I-M-H-O-F, Wim Hof, and he calls it the Iceman Therapy, and he has courses in it. Now, Wim himself, as I've seen online, I've never met the man. I do admire watching him swim around through icebergs and things and walking shirtless in Arctic and high-altitude environments, borrows, as he tells us, heavily from techniques that were passed down for thousands of years in the yogic tradition, which is part of the Vedic tradition, from North India. And uh, Wim's achievements and documented achievements at being able to regulate his immune system, at being able to regulate his body temperature at will, things that were once thought by modern science not to be possible, have now been demonstrated by him to be possible. And uh, he's certainly a very fascinating example of mind over matter. I think that Wim's techniques may in fact be fabulously good for people's bodies if they care to take their body to that extreme. On the other hand, I don't think that even he claims that you can gain enlightenment by the Wim Hof method. Enlightenment meaning the unification of individual intelligence with the universal intelligence. And for that, if we're going to do the Wim Hof method or not, but if we are going to do it, then Vedic meditation practiced regularly will certainly make anything that you learn work far more quickly and be more effective. Dan asks, it would be interesting to hear you talking about why people take things personally and how it affects them when they do. Dan, I think that taking things personally is all, again, a question of who am I, what am I? If somebody has said something to you, like, Dan, and I'm not suggesting anyone said this to you, Dan, but supposing someone said to you, Dan, I think you're a jerk. Let's suppose there are five other people in the room listening. None of those five people feel offended because, apparently, the offensive person who spoke the words wasn't referring to them. But if you decide that that person's referring to you, then you've decided to accept offense. You see, taking offense means that someone's like someone comes to you with a dagger on a silver plate 
and says, would anyone like to take this dagger and plunge it into their own chest? And if you look over and you say, I'll do that, I'll take the dagger and plunge it into my chest, then we can't say that we were offended by someone. We volunteered to be the offended person. We volunteered to be the offended person. Offense can only be taken to the extent that we believe in the credibility of the so-called offender. You know, if you don't like the opinions of a person on every other subject, except when that person says, I don't like you or you're a jerk, but you've decided to choose that one thing and make that real, then what it means is that deep inside yourself, you rather believe that it's possible that you're a jerk. Then that person's opinion may in fact have some impact on you. Otherwise, it's just a sound being made in the background. And so taking offense requires two people. It takes the one who's offering the dagger, and it takes the one who accepts the dagger and plunges it into his own chest. My advice is to strengthen one's sense of self. When one's sense of self is expanded and strengthened, then words coming out of the mouth of another uh, no more have any uh, capacity to define oneself than anything else does. To be self-defining is very important. Now, it's important that we also don't take this in an egocentric way. That is to say, my individual small self rejects what it is you're saying. That doesn't work. That staying small and being defensive and being good at defending your small self, that's not a functional and sustainable way. What we have to do is to expand our sense of what we are. I'm one with the universe. Universe can't be informed about what oneself is by anybody who's attempting to offend you. It doesn't use that kind of information to define itself. It uses its own direct experience of what you are. And this is how we rise above the ability to be offended. And this, in, in effect, gives us invincibility. I have seen people walk straight up to my master and say, you're an imposter. And he just looked and started laughing and he goes, yes, you're right. You think I'm an individual and I'm actually the universe. I agree with you. <laughs> I'm allowing you to have the view that I'm an individual. <laughs> and he just thought it was hilarious. You know, people attempt to offend, but really their attempt to offend is really only an expression of their own consciousness state too. People tend to project into the world that which they find inside themselves. <laughs> Mike asks, a while back, you spoke about empathy. I had a question regarding empathy after listening to your talk. How do we empathize with those it would be hard to empathize with? That is, for example, criminal-minded, etc. Mike, the whole idea of empathy is not that we do it when it's absolutely easy. Clearly, we can empathize with ourselves very well. I feel what it's like to be me very well, and it's not a challenge at all. It's when we're faced with the prospect of empathizing with quotes unquote other. And that is to say, to see what it might feel like to be them. And the best thing to do is to start with whoever that is being a little baby. Everyone was a little baby once, a little tiny baby looking up, smiling, wide-eyed, little legs kicking, cooing and guying and things like that. And then something happened and people began to develop a sense of individuality, partly based on the nurture, partly based on mistakes being made by their caregivers, admittedly, but then accentuating and exacerbating those mistakes once they were in their own care, 
And basically, when we see somebody who is behaving in a criminal way, that is to say, behaving in some way that is grossly offensive to the attitudes and ideas of evolutionary that other people have, then what we're seeing is someone who has basically been exposed to a very poor education in the beginning, some little baby that grew up, and then they continued to make mistakes as they went. And now they find themselves in a position where there's almost nobody they can please. And this is must be a very difficult position to be in. Now, to what extent can we relate to this, Mike? To what extent can we find some of this tendency to make mistakes like this ourselves? Are we perfect? Very often when we find somebody hard to empathize with, we also are failing to have a very clear memory about our own states of evolution and how we grew and from what we grew. From what state of consciousness have we grown into the state we're in now? And so sometimes a bit of self-examination historically, rather than simply examining oneself as one has become, looking back at our own process of evolution, this may help. And if we look at our own process of evolution and we look at somebody else and say, I wouldn't have done that, the answer to that is, yes, you would have had you been born in the same circumstances, with the same kind of caregiving or lack of, and had you been thrust into the world with a very poor self-education, then you'd have been doing exactly what this person's doing. That's why they're doing it, because they're not you. And so we need to, rather than attempting to simply empathize with oneself, we need to go back into that big self and see what is the value of the continuation of the nervous system at which I'm gazing. I'm looking at someone, is all hope lost? Or is there something about them that's redeemable? And what is that? And let's put our attention on that. My master's master, Gurudev, Maharishi's master was named Gurudev. A famous story exists about him. One day, living in the forest nearby a city, some boys came who were mischievous, and they'd heard that he only ever said, that Gurudev only ever said positive things, and they thought, we'll trick this old scoundrel and get him to say something negative. And so they went into the forest and invited him with all kinds of feigned graces to come and enjoy some food in the garden at their house. It's considered in India to invite a reclusive saint to join you in the garden. They don't go indoors, but they join you in the garden. And, you know, if they eat some food with you, it brings a great blessing to your family and the household. He said, yes, he would come. They said, fine, we'll come tonight and fetch you. It'll be a full moon night. It'll be a lovely walk for about five kilometers. Then they went on a hunt, these three boys, and they found their prize, some cat, who had had its life spoiled by a car. And the cat was bloated and filled with maggots. They dragged it by the tail, and it was a stinking, rotten thing, into directly into the path that was going to lie between the master's abode in the forest and their home. And then they got the master, and in the moonlight went walking along the path. And as they came to the cat, they said, Oh, master, careful, watch out. Oh, my God, it's a dead cat. Oh, the stink, oh, the smell. Look at it. It's filled with maggots. At this point, they looked over, and the master, covering his nose, was bending down very closely and gesturing to the three young men, Come and look. Come and look at this. They wondered what it was, and he pointed out, See the teeth? This row of teeth shining in the moonlight. It's like a string of pearls shining in the moonlight. Isn't it beautiful? And then he looked up at them and smiled and said, Come on, let's go. And off they went and had dinner. And from that time, those three young men became great devotees of Gurudev because they found, even presented with something as disgusting as a dead cat bloated with maggots, that the master was able to find the pearly teeth. So we have in our tradition a saying, find the pearly teeth. We have from Jeff, 
the Vedic view on the dark night of the soul, and our connection to trees and the hidden life of trees, our connection to Panchamama. Panchamama, for those who don't know, is a Vedic revelation of five different ways in which life can exist and sentient creatures can exist. Well, Jeff, the dark night of the soul is one subject, and our relationship to so-called trees or other beings or other objects in the world. And I'm going to deal with these individually just for a few moments. Dark night of the soul is a word used in the Roman Catholic mystic tradition for people who have had, usually in a monastic setting, after lots of deep meditation, have had experiences of some kind of inner effulgence or brilliance, some kind of experience they would attribute to experiencing God or the Godhead or God consciousness. And then following that, a period of time where they are bereft of that experience. It's not there. And no matter what they do, they can't bring it back. And what is that? And so that's called, in the Roman Catholic uh, liturgy, that's called the dark night of the soul, quotes unquotes, meaning a test through which you have to go. In the Vedic worldview, we might have a slightly different way of looking at this. As we go to that least excited state in our own consciousness, we find the quotes unquotes Godhead. In this case, it's our own least excited consciousness state. It is the field of cosmic intelligence, the field of being, which underlies our thinking process and is the source of our thoughts. When we experience that, the effect on the body is that the body rests very, very deeply. The mind has had this illuminating experience. The body has rested deeply. When the body rests very, very deeply like that, many, many times greater rest than the kind of rest you can get in a night's sleep, then the body becomes opportunistic and it begins to unstress some of its stresses, stress which has been accumulated from overloads of experience throughout a lifetime. When the stress begins to unwind and normalize, neutralize, when the body begins to purify, the process of the body re-engineering and restructuring itself may excite the brain a little. And that excited brain, being excited, mind you, by a positive good happening, unstressing is purification, normalization. But in the absence of a proper interpretation, we find that the mind or the brain no longer is able to avail itself of for a short period of time or to have an experience of that deep inner silence which was so beautiful and so unifying. Our advice is continue your practice twice every day and as you do so, the purification which was occurring will come to a natural conclusion. And when it does, the mind will once again have access to those deep inner quiet states and any further purification that has to be done will also occur. And then after a while, we've depleted all the inventory of stress from our body. Then the body and the mind are able to experience the same thing without any interruption, which is that of the mind and then the body expressing this and processing it, being realized in that I am one with the universe experience, enlightenment. Now I'd like to speak to your question about the trees and the other entities. In the Vedic worldview, there is no such thing as a non-sentient thing. A rock lying on the ground is a nervous system. It processes the consciousness field because it is a manifestation of the one indivisible whole consciousness field. Relative to a human, a rock lying on the ground may have a very narrow repertoire of behaviors. And so we make the assumption that the rock is not sentient. That is to say, it doesn't have feelings or a sense of self. But the Vedic worldview would say that's wrong. As you develop more and more capacity to perceive things with greater and greater perceptual acuity, you're going to find that even the rock on the ground takes on a quality of personality, of character, as indeed do everything 
and all things by which you're surrounded in your daily life, with no exceptions. Trees, relative to a rock lying on the ground, have a tremendous repertoire of behaviors, tremendous consciousness, a tremendous sense of self. And so the real problem from our point of view is the problem of us not having sufficient perceptual acuity to be able to detect how sentient, how feeling, how conscious all things are. As we grow our consciousness, we begin to discover that we're surrounded by nothing but living beings. There is nothing in the universe that can be declared not sentient. Why? The fundamental field, the unified field, out of which all things become manifest, itself is a field of consciousness. It's not possible for consciousness not to be in a particular place. Therefore, everything is conscious because the field itself that makes that thing is itself conscious. Orsi asks a question about the Rishi effect, and by this I assume you mean, Orsi, the effect, the proximity effect within the event horizon of someone who meditates regularly. That is to say, people walk into that proximity and they feel better. Whether they know why they feel better or not, their consciousness is somehow being uplifted by you. And then you ask, if within the event horizon, the Rishi effect affects everybody, why am I not feeling the effect within my family? Or see, let me say that this effect is relative. We don't know how your family would be if you weren't there. We're making the assumption that no change has taken place when in fact change probably has taken place. It can't be that one person in a group of people gains a greater degree of enlightenment and that that has no effect on anybody. It has to be that the behavior and thoughts and state of consciousness of one person affects everybody. This has to be true because consciousness is one indivisible whole field. But what is the effect? We also have to look at the effect that consciousness can have on causing other people to release stress. People who have pent up stress, when they come into your proximity, may in fact begin unstressing. That means their stresses begin coming out. And when those stresses begin coming out, it may come out in the form of words, which are regrettable words, or it may come out in the form of behaviors, which are not the most evolutionary behaviors. Just as any kind of purification and normalization of the body may produce behaviors which we'd prefer not to be around at the time. I mean, we go into bathrooms to purify ourselves and we close the door for a reason. That kind of self-purification is best done in private. But perhaps people find that when they're around you, since I assume that none of them meditate, that the effect that you're having on them is to cause them to begin purifying spontaneously. And maybe that's what you're predominantly seeing. So again, in all of this, the degree to which we are somewhat upset or offended by or at least not impressed by the behaviors of others has more to do with our own inner sense of self. What am I? Who am I? As we continue to grow that, then we begin to get answers to everything. People being somewhat uplifted and also unstressing a bit when they're around us. And that gives us a far more compassionate view of these so-called others who actually, or see, are simply extended self. Question from Yashoda. Plant medicine versus meditation episode. First question, I am curious if you could explore deeper into creating deserving power in the individual for higher consciousness experiences through having a reg regular practice in what is happening with the nervous system during meditation that helps sustain deep experiences so that it can be fully integrated. 
Let's start with this. I think that everyone has the highest possible deserving power for higher consciousness. It's a question of people meeting that with a regular practice. So when people practice their technique regularly, they demonstrate through their intentionality what it is they wish to experience. And beyond that, once we get the lights on in a dark room, we may discover that the darkness of the room had previous to the light been turned into a mess. And we do have to spend some time cleaning up the mess. Meditation on its own is like turning on the lights. And we need to spend some time figuring out how to correct our intellect and make our own approach to life and living absolutely rigorous. Second question, could you speak about how one can integrate deep experiences through meditation so they sustain, expand into one's awareness, as well as the distinction of induced quote, plant medicine experiences and why those experiences seem to be hard for individuals to integrate in their everyday life. I think in general terms, the best way to use the meditation technique that you've learned, Vedic meditation, if you've learned that, is to practice the technique on a regular basis, morning and evening. That's been our experience over the last 50 years in teaching this to millions of people all over the world. The technique works best if we dip into the state and then follow it with dynamic activity all day. And then in the evening, dip into the state again and follow that with dynamic activity into the evening. This tends to be like dipping a cloth into the dye and fading it in the sunshine, as you've heard me say many times, and arriving at color fastness through alternating these two opposites. I think as far as plant medicines being a little harder to integrate their regular experience into daily life, though I myself have no experience with that as a personal practitioner, I've not used any plant medicines of that type, I think that you're probably referring to psychedelics. There are people who have. What I have experience in is the ease with which meditation can be stabilized and integrated into daily life. I think that those questions are actually answered by my podcast interviewee, Dennis McKenna. If you listen to that a second time, you're going to find that he addresses that question very openly and clearly. From my practice, from my experience, I think that once people have learned Vedic meditation, if they practice the technique every day, do it the way that they've been instructed to do, follow the technique on a regular basis, whatever else they wish to try or experience or deal with as an experimentation or as a regular tactic, the most important thing is to notice what kind of benefits come from doing these things. And to do the research properly, one has to be very alert to outcomes that are desirable. From Rich, I am curious as to the Vedic view of physical self-healing. Does consciousness promote self-healing? Can consciousness be directed to heal or lessen chronic pain? Well, self-healing is going on all the time. The question is, is it impeded by existing stress? So, for example, if I am a doctor and I'm recommending to a patient that he or she, you know, have some restfulness as a result of having a cold, then, you know, I'm doing that because I recognize as a medical practitioner, if I were one, that a person resting deeply is likely to be able to trigger their own self-healing mechanisms better than someone who's not resting. Meditation, in fact, gives the body levels of rest that are fully deeper than the levels of rest that can be achieved at any point in a night's sleep. One of the primary effects of meditation is that level of rest that's acquired while doing it, and also that time of getting rid of accumulated stress. You see, stress itself that accumulates in the body 
is an immunosuppressor. It makes the immune system sluggish and gives our body too much to do. When we release these stresses as a result of regular practice, then a natural healing occurs. As far as consciousness being directed to heal or lessen chronic pain, I think that the less involvement and the less directing that we do when we're meditating, the better. Sometimes pain is something that we actually need to let our attention be on. After all, pain is a signal from the body for us to attend to that body part. It's a place that we attend from that may resolve your question. If I'm in my least excited state and I'm letting my attention go to pain, then that should bring a greater effect on healing the area than if I am in an excited state and I put my attention on the pain. I think another thing we should examine, and one day we might have a podcast on this subject alone, is that pain is a pejorative term for powerful sensations. If I call a thing pain, then already I've decided that it's something I don't want. And it may have become pain because we didn't pay attention to it when it was a mere mild sensation. It is important for us to pay attention to all body sensations. And if we do so early enough, we might be able, in fact, to prevent them coming to that level that we would refer to as pain. Natalia asks, I have met other meditators in our extended tradition who use their mantra to stop anxiety attacks, rage, etc., silently in an eyes-open state. It stops them from feeling at the mercy of their story. I don't recall being taught this during initiation. I am deeply grateful for my teachers and subsequent training. I cannot fault it, and I have particular gratitude for your generous sharing. I've also witnessed the immediate beneficial effect of this use of the mantra from several different sources now. Could you please address this, as I sense it may be helpful for those struggling with their practice? Advanced techniques have worked wonderfully well for me, but then so did my initial meditation practice. I cannot help but feel compassion for those struggling with their practice. Thank you, Natalia. Genuinely compassionate question. Natalia, I think the best way to use our technique of mantra is in the eyes closed state. That should be our strategy. Morning and evening practice regularly should reduce the incidences of having things like rage and anxiety attacks and so on. Although, naturally, if we do have a tactical need to meditate that's outside the regular strategy, there's no harm in doing so. But if in our daily life we're not only doing our strategy, but we're doing a tactic of several meditations a day, then I think we may need to ask lifestyle questions and perhaps get in touch with a therapist. But regular practice of meditation done on a, on a morning and evening basis should be enough on its own with eyes closed to meditate to elicit the most powerful effect from the mantra. The mantra, after all, is not some kind of a healing balm. The mantra in this practice is a tool that triggers a tendency for the mind to go to its least excited state. And we don't want to get too much in the practice of trying to use our mantra as a salve that we use every time we have some kind of a sensation or every time we feel a little anxiety. Jay Gurudev if you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you.